Lavatories. Love them or loathe them, they're here to stay. <laughs> we use them, we lavish our affection on them, we clean them, polish them. Some of us spend up to half our lives in them. <laughs> we read specialist lavatory magazines, spend money on the latest models with air conditioning, stereos and two-speed wipers. Some of us <laughs> even race them. No, 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 no. What? Cars. Huh? You mean cars, not lavatories. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Cars. How much do we know about them? We sit in them once a day and trust them to carry our effluent away safely, cleanly, efficiently. Whether they're porcelain, plastic, or fiberglass, lever or button flush, we. No, 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 hmm? no. You. Lavatories. You mean lavatories? Oh, yes. <laughs> beginnings of the modern lavatory were humble enough. In 1793, Johannes Krell of Leipzig constructed the first simple metal cabinet using inert gases condensing to chill the cabinet to three degrees centigrade. The first dew bin or salad crisper started no, 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 to appear no, 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 in the... No, 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 Fridges. You mean fridges. Now you're talking about fridges. Like them or loathe them, you can't ignore them. Everyone's talking about fridges. Whether you're buying or selling a property, sooner or later you'll come in contact with a fridge. Their commission is an important part of your house buying budget. No, 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 Estate agents. You're talking about estate agents. Estate agents. You can't live with them, you can't live with them. With their jangling keys, nasty suits, revolting beards, moustaches and tinted spectacles, estate agents roam the land, causing perturbation and despair. If you try and kill them, you're put in prison. If you try and talk to them, you vomit. There's only one thing worse than an estate agent, but that at least can be safely lanced, drained and surgically dressed. Estate agents, love them or loathe them, you'd be mad not to loathe them. <laughs> Is that alright? It's fine. Fine. <laughs>Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Dave. Thanks for joining Bob and I for our podcast, Thriving in Dystopia. And even though we always try and be professionals, sometimes we swear. So just know that going in. Man, it's nice to be on here with y'all. All of a sudden, I got real pumped up. Lead us, Dave. Lead us to the promised land. Am I supposed to be the leader of this? Oh, shit. If this ever makes it to air, um, it means that it was worth our time. I got Bob Mazler, Mike Bishop, and Dan Cantrick on the line with, with this boy, Dave Peachtree over here. We're going to talk about a book tonight. Um, and, yeah, might as well record it and get it out to the masses. We're talking about Eula Biss. Uh, I have no idea what the title of the book is. <laughs> Having a being had. <laughs> Having and being had. I'm always messing it up. I told Julie that it's like, it's just the book on capitalism, right? Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes when you don't know the title, that means you're just really into the book. Well, we're going to talk about the first two sections, work and uh, what's the other one? Consumption. Or consumption. 
Consumption. Should we uh, lead off with consumption? Might as well, because that's where she starts us off with. Um, yeah. Maybe Mike can start us off. He's, he's the resident poet. No, he's the resident warrior. Mike also chose the book, so that is a good place to start us yeah, off. Yeah, start it off with the guy who got us into this mess. Okay, so I'm going to shoulder all the responsibility for this. And uh, <laughs> a few weeks back, uh, me and Danny drove up to Fort Collins to visit Dave. And I think over the course of that day, our conversations around home ownership, both Danny and Dave are new-ish homeowners. And uh, there was lots of domestic conversation going on. And um, yeah, it just kind of called to mind this book that I'd heard about um, having and being had. Um, and Eula Biss is a wildly successful nonfiction writer. And she's a tenured professor at the University of Chicago, or maybe Northwestern. I got you, Mike. I'll get you. Somebody fact checked me on that. I think this book in some form was born from her discomfort at being a part of the middle class as marked by her entrance into homeownership too. So I felt like it had some parallels to um, both what Dave and Danny were going through. And yeah, I'm a big fan of uh, contemporary nonfiction literature. I thought I'd bring this to She's only four years older than you and Bob, which is... Pretty remarkable. You're making us look bad, Dave. Let's not talk about that. I feel like my career is about to skyrocket towards tenure and home ownership rapidly. Yeah, I'm I'm thinking about so like in the consumption chapter, she doesn't she talk about Karl Marx a lot? That's like the main character that she's like thinking about, or is there another one as well? I think Marx comes up more in the work chat, work like section and maybe okay. Virginia Woolf, maybe some in consumption, but Virginia Woolf is in work as well. It's the way she writes it. It's kind of like it jumps all over the place because she talks a lot about her husband and herself as like the main, like how they're, they're like wrestling with what it means to be middle class. But then she's also going and like talking about like a sort of like a biography on Marx and Virginia Woolf and how they viewed the middle class. I felt a little, the start for me was a little bit rocky. I felt confused as to who I was reading about, you know, truth be told, I'm also listening on audible. So I feel like I had more reactions about work. So maybe we can talk a little bit about consumption and see, see what comes up for we go do around the horn. Um, maybe start with Dan this time and see what he, some of his reactions on consumption were. Well, I had a similar, I had a similar experience to you, Dave. At first I was reading this, at first I started reading it and I was like, I don't know, I guess I had like some idea of what it was going to be like in my head. And I started reading it and it's like all these like mundane day-to-day narrative examinations. And I was like, I was like, I wasn't, I wasn't like getting into it first, but then quickly I realized how much I relate to it all. And like, I have the same conversations with myself and I go through the same routine and I question similar things. And I started like, it, it was an interesting, I, I think she's a really great writer in that it was like 
I just kind of going along with this story and then suddenly it was just like engulfing all my day-to-day critiques and I was right there with her and I was like wanting to talk to Mira about it and then I was thinking about I don't know just a lot's come up in consumption I haven't read work yet um but there's a lot of stuff about like um this just like what Bish said to introduce it all like when we use this word home ownership like how uncomfortable Dave and I both were with that with that phrase and then that phrase in itself isn't even true because we don't own anything the bank owns our houses and we're like paying the bank and she speaks to like at one point she speaks to the impermanence of everything how it can it can all just go away tomorrow but there's some there's some sort of like security and quote unquote home ownership that's really an illusion because uh you know our homes could be gone tomorrow so what's really secure about that but there but society has like set up this standard that there's security in that and that that's like a step you need to take and i don't know i just the thing that that struck me most about it was in consumption is just about how we develop relationships to things and how things become so important uh to like our day-to-day existence and how we relate to people how we talk to people and then how we like start to have like emotional experiences with things and yeah it got me thinking a lot about like uh media culture and streaming and television and i was thinking a lot about like developing relationships to characters on tv uh when i think about like developing relationships with things and it just it just bugged me out it it wigged me out i was like what am i doing i'm like i fall into all these traps i feel like and it like i'm this person that questions capitalism all the time but i'm also the contradiction that i'm living within it and benefiting from it at times and also suffering horribly from it at times and just like all the confusion that comes with that she also speaks about all the all the confusion of not like having a clear definition of white privilege not having a clear definition of capitalism i don't know i just related to it all and that was like i i really appreciated like her honesty can i jump the way off of she's that? like putting herself out there dan mentions like how this talks about our relationship to things and that was something that really stuck with me and while i was reading the section i thought of, i thought back to fight club so many times and thought it was so fitting that mike recommended this book and mike was the one who recommended fight club to me too all those years ago so it's like um yeah like you know from that movie the things you own end up owning you that is very strong theme in the first chapter there the consumption section and there's probably other places i can't quite remember but yeah um and there is this i mean she mentions ikea so often and that's such a theme of fight club as well um kind of like she she knows she hates ikea but she doesn't have many other alternatives so she like ends up at ikea and yeah she has this like very love-hate relationship i mean she never loves it but she has to like maybe like hate surrender type relationship to ikea she mentions like why do we 
like no you can't get a good dresser anymore that's not possible unless you happen to live with a german woodmaker who is apprenticed you know and like still has that knowledge and the time to do it um and i think randomly in her life that happened to her um or something like that um but otherwise you can't get good quality made stuff um so yeah oh and my reflections there but yeah take it away I think one of the things that Dan pointed out about the kind of the conceit of this book is that, you know, it consists of all these like short little vignettes. Um, There may be like a page or two or three pages and they all start with a moment from her day to day life. And that kind of serves as the jumping off point for these sort of thought experiments on everything from Walmart to Ikea to Pokemon to, um, you know, just all sorts of different random things that we encounter in day-to-day life. And to me, I was thinking like that ability to start from kind of any moment of your day-to-day life, like let's, let's just try it right now. Like sit and look around the room that you're in and you could probably pick out anything in your surroundings and it's going to just like mushroom into all these ideas about capitalism. And I think the way that the way that the book progresses, um, Dave was saying it's kind of it's all over the place, right? Because that's, that's how it happens. It's just like a really liberated kind of free association from the day to day anchor into all these cultural criticisms. Um, so it progresses kind of through accretion. It builds over time, and she circles back to these key ideas and texts and uh, Marx and Virginia Woolf, and she's finding herself in these other writers and scholars, but she's also really interrogating the material goods of her surroundings and her day-to-day existence. And, yeah, for me, it... It, it's really interesting kind of like the emotional character of it, how it builds and you kind of sense her, her frustration and like her, her struggle with privilege and um, maybe even like a, almost a bit of embarrassment. I think there's one section where she's talking to her sister about how much she paid for her house. And she says 400,000 when in reality it's much closer to 500,000 and she didn't want to be the kind of person that owns a half million dollar home. And so all of these things that, that we see as essential and, you know, home ownership maybe is like the hallmark of the middle class. Um, but it's also so tied to, to marks and exploitation and private property as sort of the, the starting point for this entire economic system that, um, yeah, just becomes so predatory and all-encompassing. So I guess that's kind of like my initial take on that first section. Um, there was one other thing that uh, she's really uncomfortable about, like her own work, right, as a writer. <laughs> to spend days and days doing nothing and uh, just kind of like the the terror of the blank page and like that 
intellectual struggle is kind of like put in contrast with things that are much more obviously work or labor. And yeah, that's probably something that that all of us have experienced and struggled with. Devo, what do you got? Well, I, I was thinking about how, like, as I listened to it, they're all like five minute, like little chapters, but they're probably, I bet the longest chapter is only like a few pages. Is that true? Yeah, they're very short. Yeah. So, so they're like, it's almost like little poems in some way, right? They're not like, not so much like poetry, but like vignettes maybe would be the better word for it. But, um, and so maybe all those like tied together vignettes, like, I like that idea of building up and building, um, yeah, I, as you guys were talking, I was reminded of a few of the better, like, little scenes in the furniture maker that comes up a lot um, in the first section. But I was also thinking about how, I think her husband's name is John, but if it's not, let's just call him John. Um, and, like, he identifies as either poor or lower middle class, um, like, and that has a lot to do with generational wealth. And I feel like that's been a thought that I've been having a lot recently. Like part of the reason I was able to afford a house is because we have general generational wealth with both my family and Julie's family that they've given us a lot over the years. Like not only like paying for college and like the safety net of like, you know, like when I cut my finger off, I was like, I had a hospital, I was staring down a hospital bill of like 20 or 30 grand at one point. Um, like I had no money, but I, at the, the whole way through, I was like, you know, if it really comes down to it, I'll just like, I'm sure my mom and dad can bail me out of that, which is like such a, that is like generational wealth, right? Or like white privilege or just privilege of like my class. And I feel like I come from, I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe we're like solidly middle class, me and Bob, but I've always identified as upper middle class. And I didn't even, I've never thought about what that means. Um, but like I knew growing up for a while because our dad had, you know, Parkinson's and wasn't working. Like growing up in elementary school, we always thought, I knew that we thought of ourselves as like a little bit like lower class, like lower middle class. Um, and that like definitely had an effect on who I was. But I'm, I'm curious how like your upbringing, y'all's upbringing, um, like, did it play any, does it play any effect on you? Like, do you guys have those same thoughts that I have? Like, we would never own a home without generational wealth. Like, straight up. Like, there's, even though, like, I'm totally able to pay a mortgage with my salary and then some, you know what I mean? Like, my salary alone is enough to cover our mortgage. I mean, that, but that, like, that's more or less it, you know? Like, a teacher's salary covers a mortgage and like some of the extra fees, but like in the end, like, um, yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm just curious to hear from you guys if you feel that benefit or do you feel more on John's side? Or you don't have to talk about it if we ever publish this. Who knows? Feel free to say hard pass, Dave. Can I offer a addenda to your question? Yeah, please. I think your question's great. Um, I will just say, like you're asking about our own class backgrounds, and 
I'm reading this other book called Inter uh, Intersectional Class Struggle. And they argue in that book that class is, we use that word all the time, but it's actually really complicated and it's not self-explanatory. Um, and you can define class in all kinds of different ways. So um, I say we answer Dave's question, but also think about like, what does class even mean to us um, as we try to answer Dave's question? Bob, she writes about she writes about that too. She writes about the complexities of class as far as like how you could define it by values, you could define it by like cultural knowledge, you could define it by annual salary, um, and it, that definitely like uh, made made my like thoughts around class more complex. Um, when I first think about it, I do think about like this examination that Dave was having about like what it means to be like, is the middle class tied to um, like financial wealth and value. And I like, I share, it's so funny that Bish brought up her, like her, uh, like kind of shame around like claiming that her house costs closer to $500,000 because I think about that with my house too. And I think about like, how can I claim I'm middle class if my house costs almost half a million dollars? That like is a contradiction to me in my head uh, because that's not what I think about when I think about um, the middle class. And it got, she writes about, um, she talks about when she's talking about like Marx's um, like uh, analysis of the middle class, how the middle class is like the the class that's in between the capitalists and the workers, the workers being the people that are controlled and the capitalists that control people. And that um, the middle class is who, who Marx considers the most dangerous because of their conflicting allegiances and internal contradictions. And I think about like that, that struck me so hard because my instant, my instant, when I read that sentence, I was like, wait, that's me. That I'm the, I'm the, like, I'm the class with the conflicting allegiances and internal contradictions. When I like, when we go through this exercise of like looking what's around our room and stuff, a lot of it points to me, to some sort of like, like upper middle class. A lot of my objects, my goods, like the stuff that Mira and I have invested in are, you know, things we bought using credit. And it's like, but then I, and then I like write, write about like the problems with this, or I read about the problems with this, or I have discussions with my friends about like, why this is problematic and all this. And I'm living in that world of like internal contradictions. And I don't know if I have conflicting allegiances. I, li I like to think I don't, but my actions, I feel like would speak otherwise. If someone were to just like, if we were to just like look at what I have on a, if we're like comparing like these things to others. Um, and it just got me thinking about like, the dangers of that, it got me thinking about the intersections of class and um, like uh, class and race and privilege and thinking about um, like when I think about like Boulder, for instance, and I think I was talking to 
Bob about this recently or like in a text message about this like quote unquote progressive liberal city um, but is full of contradictions uh, with the way they like their their actions versus their words and we were thinking specifically about Fairview and the like um, disgraceful response Fairview has had to sexual assault allegations and it's like to allow sexual assault to happen at a high school in this quote unquote like progressive liberal bastion of a society is like such a such a contradiction and i'm thinking about how dangerous that is like a group of people with right white privilege that do performative activism how dangerous that is um and yeah it's just i was just trying to draw the connection between marx's vision of class and like an intersection with race yeah one of the one of the things that you mentioned earlier danny about not actually owning a house but instead just uh owning an exorbitant amount of debt uh she writes about that too in a in a chapter called passing uh where and yeah earlier i kind of maybe glossed over some of the nuances of her discussion of class because what she sort of settles on i feel like is that home ownership is the the hallmark of middle class but it's it's the hallmark of middle class passing right you're not really there you're not um necessarily financially independent or anything like that but you simply have enough debt to to look like you are um so that was one of the things that i wanted to bring up but um yeah i'll take a stab at dave's question um about family wealth and um i just moved back to boulder a few months ago after being away for almost 12 years or something 11 years and it kind of occurred to me that like nearly everyone that i grew up with owns a home um or their parents own a home or they own a home and their parents own a home and um yeah that kind of was really eye-opening to me because i i do not own a home uh, and neither of my parents own a home they both rented in boulder for 30 years and yeah like we don't we don't have any intergenerational wealth um my brother owns a home but i think and i think my parents maybe helped him a little bit with a down payment not sure if his wife's parents helped as well um but that's kind of a that's kind of the way it is now right dave it's like for for someone of our generation our age to be able to buy a house um you kind of either need an extraordinarily high paying job or some type of windfall or um family wealth so it's been it's been interesting to like i think of this uh stat that that ties into like class analysis um the the one thing that's most predictive of your upward mobility in america uh this this uh 
throw it out to the, the panel. Anyone have a guess? What is the one factor that most reliably predicts your upward mobility in America? It's, it's not SAT score. Can't be. Your race? I don't know. Close. Warm. What do you got, Bob? Bob will nail it. Huh. Maybe. God, that's a really tough question. Um, of course, the like. Education of parents. Yeah. That's like education is the one that like our society wants us to believe in. And I do think that education still gives some class mobility, but maybe it's being born in like a suburb or something like we'll that. We'll have to do a post hoc a citation for this, but um, it's the zip code in which you're born is more predictive of your upward mobility than anything else. And it pulls in all sorts of factors, right? It pulls in race because of redlining. It pulls in uh, education, of course, because of public school funding. And, you know, I'm... I was born in Hawaii and grew up in Boulder. So, I mean, on paper, I probably had a, a fair bit of upward mobility rocket fuel that has uh, resulted in a failure to launch in some sense. It's a tough thing to, to reconcile. I was just going to ask, and again, you can do Dave if you want to pass. That's totally fine. But do you feel like home ownership is something you're like you uh, have a goal on or is that not something that you're like valuing right now for me yeah um i'm i guess i sort of identify as a, a somewhat nomadic person um i like to travel a lot and i move a lot and of course i have this like upcoming overseas opportunity um, but when I did come back to Boulder, I started, this might take us to an interesting place. I started looking and I was like, okay, what, how could I possibly create some, some type of like enduring stability in this town where rents are just creeping up and up and up. And, you know, Boulder is a wealthy town, but it is being gentrified to the point that like millionaires are struggling here. Um, so I looked at uh, the San Susi trailer park right outside of town. And uh, it's, it's become a co-op. So it's like owned by the residents. Um, it's right down the street from Dave and Bob's family home on Brown Circle. And it's technically outside of the city limits, but it's in in the county or something. Um, and yeah, that took me down the whole rabbit hole of kind of what does affordable housing look like in Boulder and what do these trailer parks look like? The average price of a trailer in Boulder County is $72,000. <laughs> and uh, I looked at one, it was quite nice, but it was a one bedroom, one bath trailer that was built in the sixties and remodeled. And it was listed for, I believe it was over $90,000. And then there's a lot rent, which, uh, as of earlier this year, I think it was around $600 after the co-op formation took place. 
it was going to raise up to $750 a month. And their hope was to stabilize it at $850 a month with a $50 increase next year and a $50 increase the year after that. So if you've got close to a hundred grand or, you know, you could tie that up in a mobile home, which is not going to appreciate in value, um, but it will buy you kind of a, it'll basically buy you rent control. You know, uh, our friend Ian Carbone's house cost about that much. Oh, wow. You know, he lives in a really depressed area in um, Western PA in his house, which is like a two-story with a basement, three-bedroom, two-bathroom, like hardwood floors, like with a yard was, I don't know exactly what the price was, but I know it was a little bit, it was around 100000 you know what I mean? Which is like... It's just wild how, like, in Boulder, you can get a trailer from the 1960s where that, like, Carbone's house, Ian and Taylor's house from in Meadville, like, if that was in Boulder, it'd go for well over a million, you know? Depending on the exact location. It's just like, yeah, it's just hard to fathom. And, like, yeah, like you say, like, upward mobility that Boulder provides, right? Like, you're buying into so much more than just. Um, yeah, just the idea of a trailer. Anyhow, sorry, I know that we were sort of going down the line, going after Bob, and he hasn't got a chance to talk in a while. Didn't mean to interject too much. Yeah, this has me thinking about um, when we're talking about possibly home ownership or possible home ownership, and like this idea or this trend where like getting a home or buying a home has an effect on a person towards like atomizing and isolating in a sense, like, like becoming the, the quote unquote typical family, right? Like to get a home, what you need to do is get like a partner and like in the modern day, you can have like a same sex partner, but you've got to still have like that classic, just two person, you know, binary. Um, and you got to have both incomes and then, but you don't, you don't want anything beyond that. Like you want the family unit, whatever it is. And the family unit is very like heteronormative or homonormative. Um, so I'm just thinking about like, I don't think that's the only force in our society that is creating this atomization or this, you know, individualization of society. Um, but it certainly contributes to it. And I'm thinking like about collectivity. Um, like think about like the college house with like, especially in Santa Cruz with like 15 kids from different environments. And there's a degree of like breaking of the family unit. Um, and they're all renting, um, but they will all probably like desire to get in that family unit and, you know, get to the next step. And, um, yeah, I think that that intersects with a Marxist analysis because Marx is talking about how the, like the family unit is the core of capitalism and you need a family unit where 
the wife does all the domestic labor and is unpaid and gets the husband ready to go to work, takes care of the kids, the husband gets the money and then brings it home. And that's like the core of capitalism. Um, so I just, yeah, was thinking about all of that. And, but yeah, I mean, it's not like we have much alternatives, you know, like the alternatives aren't there either. Like, um, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, that, that's the thing. Like we're caught in between in a catch 22. And so ownership also can be, can be radical. You know, you could use your home for radical purposes. Um, but it, it's like this just devastating structural condition of Western societies, I think. Yeah, Bob, something that you said there uh, sparked something for me. And you're talking about kind of collectivity or radical use of property or um, other ways of doing this besides that isolation and atomizing, individualizing way of pulling people out of the community and putting them into like a, a separate space. And what, it, what I thought of is... Um, <laughs> is kind of out of left field but uh roland bart wrote this book well he gave a series of lectures right at the end of his life um that were collected and then turned into a manuscript a book against his wishes um, but it's called how to live together and one part of this book examines uh this concept of idiorhythmy which is sort of like an overlapping of the rhythm of our lives with other people in our immediate community. And the example that he used, one of the examples that he used is um, kind of like a, a community of monks where each member of that community has a small private quarters. And then there are a bunch of kind of communal structures, a communal kitchen, a living area that's all shared so that these people can kind of come and go as they, as their, their life rhythms dictate to and from the community spaces. Um, but they still have that kind of privacy and individual space. And all right, this is might really be out there, but do you think that like a Google campus could be an example of that? <laughs> I mean, they're these like tech company mega campuses are almost like little private communities, uh, shared space, and all of these people who are fantastically wealthy. Um, the incomes for entry level data scientists or software engineers. I just asked a friend about this because I was like, man, how am I ever going to be able to afford to live in these places that I love? Should I retool and go to a coding boot camp? I know someone who recently did this. Um, and he just sort of casually dropped that the entry level salary was, oh, about 110, $110,000. And, you know, these people that are working for Google, which has built a huge, huge presence in Boulder and is contributing to the rapid. Uh, unaffordability, increasing unaffordability of this town. Uh, those are folks that are making probably twice that much money per year. 
and creating this kind of pseudo utopian shared community space. So that kind of begs the question, how do we do it at the other end of the spectrum? I, I feel like Fort Collins where I live is a little bit better. Um, and I'll let Bob answer too, but I feel like I'm living in this like little white utopian community where the houses are out of like most people's price range. You know, we have the smallest unit in our community and it was, you know, pretty close to 400,000. Um, and yeah, I just feel like it's, we, we live on the lines where like we live, if you go like, well, I don't know, maybe a half a mile North, there are like trailer park and Latinx communities too. Um, but I feel like how you were, if like how to blend the communities together in any way that feels like real is like, I don't know. It's a question that I have because I'm like, I know that where I live is very white and I'm realizing that that, yeah, I don't know. I guess. I don't really know what I'm saying, except for the fact that they're, it's like very distinct in these like communities that are only like a half mile apart um, are extremely different and like will have very different outcomes for who, who, who grows up in these communities. But yeah, Bob, you had another answer to that too. Oh yeah, no, I was, I was interested in, in your thoughts, Dave. Um, I felt like you hadn't had a chance in a bit. Um, yeah, no, I, I, w I ranted on that little bit before. I don't have any answers to that question. I think we're like, we don't have that much time. So I, I'm, I'm happy to pass it to Dan. Yeah, I don't know. I just thinking about um, like this uh, radical way to rethink um, living and collective living is something we've been as like our our group of friends in our community it's something we've been like discussing for over a decade now um it's interesting to see that we've also like simultaneously all like gone down our own individual path um and it's just having me it's, ha it's like a reflection point right now as we're discussing this to be looking back on the last decade and thinking about um, this goal and dream of some sort of radical collective living experiment, which uh, we've enacted in different ways, like over the years. I'm not by no means am I suggesting there's any sort of failure, um, but it's making me think about um, like the barriers that we've experienced in trying to do that and the complexities. Um, that just come up. I think a lot about like relationships and how those impact um, like these, these types of things. But again, I just think I, there's not like, um, there's like barriers, but it's also feels very doable with the right um, like support. And I feel that like from, all of you when we have these discussions it feels like it feels like step towards 
like starting to break down those barriers and think about different ways of living and how that works. Um, so yeah, that's just what I'm thinking about in this moment. There's like some sort of uh, spark that's coming up in me about like, how do I, how do I rethink the way I'm currently living on in my home in this house with Mira? Um, what else can exist out there? How else can it be? How can it, how, how else can it be done? So I just, yeah, I'm just appreciative of this conversation and these thoughts. Yeah. Maybe I can share one final thought and then pass it over to Bob and Mike for the, the final finals. But there's a section in the book where um, she talks to dad on the bench about how Scooby-Doo is um, kind of like this idea of like rampant capitalism gone wrong in some ways where like every episode of Scooby-Doo, there's some like guy that's trying to rob somebody that's like monster right and he's like oh yeah i'm just like trying to rob like some diamond off a cruise ship or i want to get some gold from like the local school or something and they co concoct this like plan right and the the monster inevitably is capitalism and the the gang tries to get together to like unmask capitalism and be like hey like you can't steal money from the school board to like funnel it into like police brutality um not that that's really exactly what Scooby and uh, Shaggy say, but, you know, they basically say that. Uh, but I feel like, to me, like, when I read that section was thinking about that, I was like, I don't know, like, I kind of feel like you can unmask capitalism and, like, which is, like, was one of my goals in my life, and I feel like I've tried to unmask, like, what capitalism is like be like yeah see this is what capitalism's doing and i still end up buying like the che Guevara poster and like the rage against the machine album to try and like fight capital like yeah fuck it like i'm not going to be part of your system um yeah just like need to sign up for my bmg music program so i can get my new blink 182 album or whatever i, I just feel like whatever you do i feel like trapped you unmask capitalism and it's like see you were behind there the whole time and we end up spending like hundreds of dollars at left-hand books trying to like get back at the capitalist system so that is also like a point where i feel like a little bit trapped by it all um and that was like my final thought of the day that i wanted to share but yeah any other wrap-up points from the two elders of the community um i got a couple or you can go bob whichever um you go you go mike and then my thoughts are still okay um, i was thinking one of the barriers maybe that that seems most salient danny to like creating some type of like idiorhythmy community uh has probably been geographic right because look at how we're all distributed now and like getting a bunch of people that have like a shared vision to buy into living in the same space has been you know pretty difficult um who knows what the work from home revolution will, how that will affect that barrier. Um, so there may be increasing possibility for something like that. Um, if we're not geographically bound by jobs and commutes and things like that, um, might make it easier. And then um, I guess one final thought about like, whether you buy into capitalism or not, um, 
there's kind of this hilarious quote that I think it came from some unknown person within the rock climbing community. And the quote is that there's a leisure class that exists at both ends of the economic spectrum. Uh, because you have the extraordinary wealthy, of course, that have, you know, to our minds, they, they probably have time to spend as they please. And then at the opposite end of the spectrum is the dirtbag climber who doesn't buy into capitalism any more than they need to to get a vehicle, a rack of climbing gear and a rope and can just go live on the road extremely cheaply for years on end and uh, work as minimally as necessary to facilitate a more authentic life, whatever it is that they define that as. And uh, this is something that I that I wrote about in, in the context of surfing. I have a, a new publication coming out in the normal school pretty soon. Uh, but the gist of this like really short flash piece, kind of like one of these Eulabis vignettes, was that I attained freedom by um, basically by buying a bunch of shit off Amazon. I bought a solar panel, a charge controller, I bought a battery from Costco, I bought a rice cooker, and put all this stuff into a van and turned it into like a solar powered camper. And I really kind of satirized that notion of attaining freedom while at the same time, um, maintaining one of those uh, uncomfortable allegiances with the, the corporate overlords of American commerce. Uh, so I don't know that you ever can fully escape from it, but you can certainly, it certainly seems like you can buy yourself uh, stretches of time where you can invest your time in something more authentic than relationships with things, even if some level of relationship to things is what facilitates that freedom. Yeah. That part of it is like, um, it's like a, a rich area, like the ways in which pretty much no matter what we do, we buy back into the system. And that I think the first thing is like, well, maybe in our twenties, we, thought we could get outside the system or something like that. Now it's like, okay, we know we can't. Um, and that's not like a good or a bad thing. It's just like a reality. Um, but you know, we can't like go to the other end and just be like, fuck it. Like nothing matters. Like a sort of nihilism about it because that wouldn't work either. And you know, so I don't exactly know what the right answer is there, but like having this critical mindset of when we're doing it, when we're buying a home or buying a solar cell, like just, you know, like maybe, and I don't even, even know what a critical mindset exactly is, but maybe it's like, I'm doing this to support revolutionary change in society, even though I don't know quite what that is. Um, like, um, with class struggle, it it just seems like um, supporting working movements is is what we have to do wherever it comes, and be 
as aware as possible of working class movements and trying to figure out how can I contribute to them. Um, and those are going to be such different movements wherever we are, where Mike is, Dan is, Dave is, where I am. They're, they're just going to be very different. Um, so, yeah, I'll stop it there. I got one more thought, unless we're, we're out of time. Go for it. Um, yeah, just what you were saying about kind of the inescapability of it. Um, what if we engage with these kind of capitalist systems from an ethic similar to the way that a vegan ethic is constructed? And that's reducing our interaction with a capitalist system as far as is practical and practicable. Because we know you can't ever do it perfectly. There's no way to exist as a human being without killing other things. And there's no way to exist as a human being without participating in capitalism. But you can make a very serious effort to minimize that as much as you can, or to liberate other people along the way. We'll end it. Um, and yeah, we got another section. Well, we barely got into work, I guess. but. Definitely got at least a couple more sections on interest and uh, something like economic to that effect, right? Investment, Inve I think. Yeah. Right. Investment. And what's the last one? Accounting. Yeah, I'm really interested to see where she's going to take this. Maybe she'll give us some good, good answers towards the end. Yeah, yeah. I hope we get some answers more more down the road. But, I mean, that's also always, like, the folly of, like, reading and watching some of these, like, critical documentaries where you're like, all right, let's watch an hour and a half on how horrible the meatpacking industry is, and then they'll give you like five seconds of veganism, you know? Uh, but anyhow, boys, thanks for the, the convo, and yeah, see y'all next week. What's up, Driving Crew? Bob and Dave want to take a second to thank you for lending them your ears. They also want to thank the artists for making everything a little more beautiful. Intro song is In Heaven by Drake Stafford. Our audio is edited by the consummate and dexterous Nadir Chayetch. Web design by Chris the Mixer Sawyer. And of course, visual art is by the prolific and enigmatic Joe Shine. The outro song to season eight is Captain Jack by Kimo Rukru. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Sauvage fabrique un radeau Un jour voyant trop large qu'il croyait un bateau On le prit à bord et en fit un pirate Commençant la légende de Jack Captain Jack, Captain Jack